It seems only yesterday that our old friend Tim Flannery was making the point on this very program that we know more about the moon than we do about the ocean depths. Beloved listeners, now here's a mind-boggling fact for you. Did you know that we've mapped the entire surface of the moon, but uh, we've, uh, we've charted less than a quarter of the seabed here on Earth. Now, most of the ocean floor that we have managed to map lies close to shore, but uh, we've scarcely begun to explore the remaining three quarters of the aptly named Deep Sea. Now, my next guest is an award-winning ocean journalist, Laura Trethewing, and she's been fascinated by the world's seafloor, and she says it's the last mysterious place on Earth. Laura writes extensively about the ocean for many publications, including The Atlantic, The Wall Street Journal and Smithsonian Magazine, and her new book, The Deepest Map. Laura's plunged back under the, under the water to tell the story of the high-stakes race to map the entire ocean by 2030. It's an epic race involving deep-sea divers, ocean mappers, marine biologists and, yes, uh, billionaire adventurers, of which more late, later. But first, let me introduce Laura from her home in Canada. Laura, welcome to our little wireless program. I understand that one of the... Uh, provocations that got you writing the book was this, uh, well, this trope that we know more about the surface of the moon than we do of the ocean. Yeah, so, um, yeah, as a journalist who covers the ocean, I've read that line in so many different articles, so many different books, I've lost count. And every time I read that line, you know, I never saw a good explanation for why. You know, why do we care more about outer space than the ocean. We're pouring billions of dollars into exploring planets far away that have hardly any bearing on our daily life. While the ocean has this huge impact on society and it gets just a fraction of that investment. And it's not just about the money that the public's far more fascinated with rocket liftoffs and pictures of Mars than they are with deep dives and deep sea creatures. Yeah. You, you ask the rhetorical question, is it religious, is it political? Because we can see the moon, but we can't see the bottom of the ocean. Mm-hmm, yeah, you know, anyone with a telescope, they can check out the moon on a clear night, but exploring the deep sea, you know, I think that's one of the reasons why we, we care less about it. It's, it's very dark, it's very difficult to, to get there. When you actually get down in a submersible and look around through a porthole, you can actually only see a few meters ahead of you at a time. It's it's sort of like exploring a dark room with a flashlight. So yeah, so I dug into that cliche a little bit more that you mentioned, you know, this uh, this trope we hear again and again, and it is about mapping. We've we've mapped Mars and the moon and many other planets perfectly, but at the time I started writing the book, we'd only mapped about 15% of the seafloor, even though we've had the tools and technology to do it for decades. My guest is Laura Trithoe, and we're discussing Seabed 2030. If uh, we've mapped less than a quarter of the seafloor so far, the project is running out of time, surely. Mm-hmm, yeah. Seabed 2030, it was kicked off in 2017. They've, they've made a lot of project, 
progress since then. So they're they're sitting at around 25% now mapped. And uh, the project was spearheaded by a group of mostly academic mappers at universities and institutions all over the world. And they said, we're going to map the entire seafloor by the end of the next decade. So they were going to do uh, it all in 13 years, map the remaining 85% of the seafloor. And they were going to make all those maps free and publicly available to whoever want them. And they chose that 2030 deadline based on how many ships were available at the time, how many ships had deep water sonars on them. And back when I started talking to people about the project, the mappers were very optimistic, even though they knew it was a really ambitious deadline. Uh, they planned well, to make up let's, any let's compare the current effort with the simple estimation that at the time it would take nearly a thousand years for one survey ship to finish a complete map of the seafloor. Yeah, exactly. They they put out that statistic at that time. And so they had to make up a lot of shortfalls. Uh, and they were going to do that with things like crowdsourcing and drones. And and the drones are making incredible progress. In in one chapter in the book, I go to a, a startup company called Sail Drone in San Francisco. And I watched some of these drones coming off the assembly line. Back in 2021, Sail Drone went through a, a Category 4 hurricane. <laughs> and they captured the first footage from inside. It's, it's just terrifying. You're looking at what essentially a, a dead man would see right before his ship sunk. And, you know, a few years ago, this would have been impossible for ocean mapping. One ocean mapper told me it's like it's like black magic for ocean mapping. But you're going to need more than these brilliant drones to finish the job in the six and a half years left. Yeah, there's a lot of pessimism within the community right now over whether Seabed 2030 can actually make that deadline. There's just so much deep international waters left to chart and, and we haven't even started to tackle it yet. So, uh, but you know, there's no penalty if we miss the deadline. If if 2030 comes and goes and we haven't finished the map, it's okay. It's just that we we miss out on all these amazing discoveries. You make the point that, yes, we've mapped Mars and the moon with uh, lasers and light, but you can't do that with the deep sea. You have to use a sound. Why sound? Right, so water absorbs light, so it doesn't travel very far, but sound travels really well in the ocean. You've probably noticed when you're snorkeling or scuba diving that you hear sound really clearly. And so ocean mappers use the speed of sound the same way a bat uses echolocation, they they send out with their sonar a, a ping that travels through the water column, bounces off the seafloor, returns to the sonar. But it's it's never that simple. There's a lot of things that that warp their calculations. So, ocean temperature, pressure, salinity—it's really hostile world down there. And then plus the ocean mapper is up on the surface working offshore, and there's wind, and there's waves, and there's salt water corroding your equipment. It just takes a lot of time and effort and money too. Seabed 2030 pegged the costs of its mission at $3 billion or up to $5 billion. And that's roughly how much it costs to send the Perseverance rover to Mars in 2020. So uh, mapping contested waters must also be a difficulty. Yeah, yeah, like throw in the politics and it gets even more complicated. Seabed uh, 2030, it's it's... A clearly stated scientific goal. They're going to make this map for anyone who wants them. But 
many nations still consider mapping within territorial waters to be an infringement on sovereignty. And when you get closer to a country's shorelines, you know, some countries claim that that's, you know, essentially spying. So, yeah, it can just be a geopolitical minefield to to map in contested waters. Now, national governments have uh, typically funded scientific operations to, uh, well, to reach unexplored terrain, but more recently there have been, well, a tendency for billionaires to form their own exploration companies, and we think, of course, of of Musk and uh, Bezos funding space exploration, and, of course, the ill-fated voyage of Ocean Gate Titan, the submersible that imploded on the route to the Titanic. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, over the last decade... We've been seeing this this trend develop. The world's richest people, most of them are white men, have been outpacing government investment for for some time on the the exploration front. So Elon Musk has SpaceX, Jeff Bezos has Blue Origin. And a lot of critics argue that that, that's not a step forward. This is actually a a slide backwards. It, It makes exploration look a lot like it did in the, you know, the 19th century when England in, in, had an in industrial what residence. in what sense right well there was this huge gap between the rich and the poor back then um and the people up at the very top the elite they could they could become these gentlemen explorers so they all of a sudden had enough time and money on their hands to to start up a new hobby uh, exploring unknown jungles unknown continents and now that's happening again in outer space and it's definitely happening in the ocean too well, of course, we're talking about the biggest ego trips that are imaginable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. We've got in the ocean, we've got a lot of billionaires investing there. So there's people like Google CEO Eric Schmidt. There's Mark Benioff from Salesforce, uh, the late co-founder of Microsoft, Paul Allen. They've all been buying submersibles or ships or launching ocean research outfits. And on the face of it, I think most people would say, you know, that's a good thing. Ocean science has been really underfunded over the last few decades, especially in comparison to space exploration. And many of those groups are really good supporters of science and research. But a lot of scientists, when this trend sort of kicked off, they were very concerned that the ultra-rich were were setting research priorities that weren't really informed by science or or that, that they were using science to sort of window dress or burnish their legacies. And then there's also another subset of billionaires who are buying submersibles just for fun. So there's no pretension about science or research, really. It's it's just cool to have a submersible on their on their super yacht, a little like you would a jet ski or a helipad. So so deep exploration for, for them is just another form of extreme tourism, really. One of the most colourful characters you've interviewed for your book is uh, Victor Vescovo, a Texan financier who sunk millions of dollars into becoming a record-breaking deep-sea explorer. Tell us about Victor and his five deeps expedition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so Victor is this larger-than-life figure. He's from Dallas. He's a multimillionaire who, who made his fortune in private equity. And then he'd been using that for some time to kind of create this modern explorer's lifestyle. So he has a plane. He pilots himself. He completed the Explorer's Grand Slam, which is uh, reaching the summits of the highest mountains on all seven continents and skiing to both poles. And when I describe this person, you might be picturing this sort of adrenaline-jacked 
blowhard Texas financier, but he's really not like that at all. He has these piercing powder blue eyes and and paper white skin, and he's soft-spoken and thoughtful, and he likes to nerd out over military history and sci-fi. But he's also just someone who's never bored. He's always fascinated by what he could accomplish next. And sometime in the early aughts, he gets this idea that he wants to become the first person to dive the deepest points of all five oceans. And he actually gets this idea from Richard Branson, the British business magnate who abandoned the same quest after his submersible caved in under the simulated pressure of of diving under full ocean depth. And Victor says like, hey, the world record is still up for grabs. And he decides to go do this. But of course, he's not the only one interested in doing this. The the film director, James Cameron, Cameron also uh, dived the Pacific's Challenger Deep in 2012. And he nabbed the world record for deepest solo dive in the world. But there were a lot of malfunctions on that trip. None of them life-threatening. But that submersible never dived again. And then Victor takes over Branson's quest. And he actually completes it in 2019. He finished diving the deepest points of all five oceans. So he's reached the bottom of... The Puerto Rico Trench in the Atlantic, the Java Trench in the Indian Ocean, the Malloy Hole in the Arctic, and then the deepest point in the Southern Ocean, which is uh, around Antarctica. You uh, say that Victor is one of the the good guys in that his uh, private explorations has supported science and research. Yeah, that's right. Um, I don't know if he started out that way necessarily. He originally intended to go to sea without a, a mapper on board his ship, but he brought on a team uh, to help him with this quest. And he brought on this marine geologist, Heather Stewart, and they all convinced him to hire a mapper and install a multi-beam sonar on his ship, which is you know the most advanced sonar you can buy today. And financially, that was a huge ask because at that point, Victor had already sunk millions into the project. He bought a research ship. He'd hired a staff. He purchased this specially designed titanium submersible. And and Victor's wealthy, but he's not Jeff Bezos. He doesn't have unlimited resources to pour into diving the deep sea. But Heather Stewart and the rest of the team, they tell him, you know, no one knows where the deepest points of all five oceans are. The Pacific is sort of the exception because everyone knows it's the Challenger Deep, but the rest are really all up for debate. And so the the team tell him, if you sail around the world, you dive all these arbitrary points, someone could come around in a few years who has surveyed those points properly and and steal your record. And so that convinces him. And then along the way, the mapper that he hired, Cassie Bongiovanni, tells Victor about Seabed 2030. And Victor had no plans for all the maps they were making, and he ends up giving them all away to Seabed 2030, which is just a huge contribution to to ocean science. So I think he proved himself. This is LNL on RN, and we're talking to ocean journalist Laura Trithui about her new book, The Deepest Map, the uh, high-stakes race to chart the world's oceans. Have you been deep yourself? (laughs) I mean, I tried. I tried my best. Um, During the writing of this book, I asked so many different institutions and explorers to take me on board a submersible. You know, I'm an ocean journalist, but I've never really properly been to see myself beyond going on a cruise ship. (laughs) But I managed. Yeah. 
I'm not being I'm critical, managed. just curious. Now, I understand, in fact, we've done quite a few programs on it, that commercial deep-sea mining on the seafloor could uh, begin as early as 2024. And there are, of course, quite serious environmental risks involved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Uh, the miners, deep-sea mining, they're focused on something called polymetallic nodules, which are abundant in this part of the Pacific called the Clarion-Clipperton Fracture Zone. It's about halfway between Hawaii and Mexico. And there's a big push on right now to mine those deep sea, per, perhaps as early as 2024. And we really have no idea what those mines are going to do. It's a, it's a huge experiment on a vast scale. And uh, a lot of businesses and countries have come out against it. Um, the Natural History Museum of London recently released a study catalog cataloging all the life that's been found down there. And they found 5,000 new species just in that one area, the Clarion Clipperton zone. So wow. it's really one of those places where the more we explore, the more we find. And we are causing trouble deep under the oceans that we may not understand. That's right. Yeah, this is only one pressure of many. Uh, the ocean's dealing with a lot of different uh, threats right now. And so there's a lot of concerns about the tiling tailing waste that would be pumped into the ocean that would spread all over, um, the ecosystems that would collapse. So, yeah, it's just a massive experiment. Laura Trithoe, do you think there are dangers that uh, seabed... 2030's a complete map of the ocean floor might cause? And it, yeah. I, the, there are surely risks that this great achievement could be used for nefarious purposes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's been so much concern about releasing a complete map of the seafloor to the whole world. I mean, there's national security concerns. There's all kinds of worries about that. But... You know, I guess my argument would be that a map is is really just a neutral tool. It's it's up to us to figure out what we want to do with these maps. And and we've used them for good in the past. We've created conservation areas before with them. Um, and there's actually a treaty that's working its way through the UN right now. It's that's the, the the Biodiversity Beyond National Jurisdictions Treaty. Yeah, you know it. Yes, exactly. To set aside 30% of the high seas for sustainable use. And that was created using satellite maps. Yes, so, we, you know, we didn't talk much about satellites. They have their limitations, but their advantages. Yes, they can get it done a lot more quickly than sending out a ship with a sonar. So we rely on them a lot. And uh, if we finish this complete map of the seafloor by 2030 or whenever, <laughs> we can maybe pull off another huge win for the ocean uh, that protects it using maps. But let us also remember that the UN's uh, Biodiversity Beyond National Jurisdiction Treaty, the BBN, aims to set aside 30% of the high seas for sustainable use, but it hasn't been ratified yet. Yes, that's right. It actually opens for ratification on my birthday, <laughs> September 20th, next month. So, uh, yeah, I would love to see every single country uh, adopted and ratified as soon as possible um, because the ocean hasn't really gotten a major treaty like that in years. The last big one was the Law of the Sea in 1982, and the, the ocean has obviously changed a lot since 1982. So we really need another one, and, and we really need a, a lot of 
money and support as well for monitoring and enforcing those rules because yeah, the ocean is just really hard to to uh, enforce any rules. I th- we've now got a new motivation. We're going to celebrate your birthday, Laura. <laughs> you know, clearly this is of immense significance. Look, you're a charming and fascinating guest and it's been a delight to talk to you. We shall now struggle ashore and move on to another topic. But uh, thanks for that, Laura. Laura Trithewey is an ocean journalist and author and her wonderful book is The Deepest Map, The High Stakes Race to Chart the World's Oceans and it's published by by HarperCollins. Think bigger about the world we live in. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.